This episode is brought to you by Push Messaging God's Urban Airship. They can be found at urbanairship.com and by ThinkNear. Their location score platform delivers the most accurate location targeting available on mobile. Visit them at locationscore.com. And by Pollen. Access your app store revenues faster and fund user acquisition straight away. To sign up, go to pollen.vc. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Untethered.tv. I'm your host and founder, Rob Woodbridge. Today, today, live from Toronto, that's why I got my great Canadian emblem, my great Canadian flag on my chest, is uh, Matthew Ingram, who is a senior writer from GigaOM. Now, I'm going to get him to describe what GigaOM does and what he does for GigaOM, but we've been following Matthew for a long time. Uh, if there's anybody who has a great perspective on what is going on in the media space when it comes to the complete and utter, it's not destruction, but, you know, uh, creative destruction of what's going on in the media landscape, newspapers, radio, and television. Matthew would be the guy to know he's written about it. He's written, uh, on my account, like hundreds of articles about what's going on in this media space. And I want to ask him what he thinks the implication of these devices are going to be going forward. Not only the smartphones, but screens, dumb screens, tablets, and the like. So I'm going to bring him in right now. Matthew, thank you for doing this live from Toronto. Great. Thanks for having me, Rob. Well, uh, so GigaOM, uh, as we were talking before I started recording, GigaOM for me was one of the inspirations for Untethered.tv. So, uh, and Om Malik was one of them as well. So uh, ultimately, it's it's the reason I'm doing this, and it's the reason you are at GigaOM. So why don't you describe what GigaOM is and what you do for them? So GigaOM is a digital media company. Um, you know, we, we used to call ourselves a blog uh, and a blog network, but we've we've moved beyond that, obviously. Um, so, you know, it started as Ohm's personal project, writing about telecom and bandwidth and the changes that that, that was going to sort of wreak on, on all sorts of things. And we've just continued expanding. Um, I've been there, I guess, about five years now. Um, and we've just kept uh, expanding into more areas and doing more things. My kind of corner of it is obviously media and the sort of transformation of media the evolution or, or disruption of media. Um, and I guess the, the sort of core vision of GigaOM has always been what, what kind of transformations are, are we going to see as a result of um, you know, unlimited bandwidth, ubiquitous connectivity, um, networked environments. And so I sort of look at that from a media perspective. How does it change the media? How does it change our relationship to media, how does it change um, the way we sort of produce and consume media. Um, and I also do a, a fair bit of writing about just web culture in general. So, you know, privacy, um, free speech, um, areas like that that I'm sort of personally interested in. And that's it in a nutshell. Um, we also, GigaOM, sort of, just so your, your listeners know, that structure of the company um, we have an editorial operation, but we also have two other uh, sides of GigaOM. So one is our research, our proprietary research, um, which is subscription-based, and then we do uh, events as well. 
I know, and it's pretty massive. Some of the events are, um, you know, widespread, but I've been to a number of them, and they're great. The highest quality and highest caliber of speakers and uh, and folks come to these events in the audience and on the stage. So I've always, always been so impressed with what GigaOM does. And same and with the research. Thanks. And the, the, the three of those things, um, Ohm often talks about the flywheel, or I like to think of it as a sort of virtuous circle. All three of those things sort of feed off each other to the extent that we do a good job on the editorial side, which is ad-supported and, and effectively free, to the extent that we sort of create a reputation for ourselves and for GigaOM as thoughtful, you know, analytical sort of uh, observers who can, who can help put things in context for you, then, then that creates um, or accelerates demand for say coming to a conference uh, in order to meet some of those people or maybe going deeper on a topic through research so they all kind of you know work together and I, I can imagine that this has been an evolution you've been there five years I mean your previous role was at a terrestrial print newspaper called the Globe and Mail which is Canada's national newspaper here uh, and I, I would say that that's a that's that was a coveted spot that you were in uh, covering technology for the Globe and Mail uh, I mean what was it like to give up and move to the digital side uh, from from the print side. It was uh, <laughs> it was sort of a leap, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. Five uh, years ago, man. Yeah, from a from a kind of high place, uh, just jumping off into nothing, and uh, and obviously Ohm and my relationship with Ohm, um, who I got to know through Mesh, was a big big reason for me jumping. I just you know I, I trusted him and and. And to be honest, part of me thought, um, I've been at the Globe for 15 years. Um, I don't really, you know, I think it's, it is struggling, was struggling with tra the transition. Um, I was getting frustrated with some of the things that I wanted to do or was doing on my own, um, blogging and so on, that, that weren't being sort of received as well at the Globe. And so I just thought, you know, what the hell? Like, why not um, try something new? I'm not getting any younger. Um, I don't want to sort of become one of the, one of the sort of washed up, you know, hacks who just sits there and thinks, well, I can hardly wait till my pension kicks in. And, you know, if I can just hang on until then. Um, so I just wanted to try something new and, and experiment. And, um, and I've certainly, I don't regret it at all. Oh, I can't imagine that you would. Uh, I mean, do you still see, has the guard turned on these newspapers? Like in the five years since you've left the Globe, uh, do you still see the same people at the Globe or are they, are they new people? Is there new thinking along the lines? There are new, there are new people. There are okay. also people who, um, you know, I knew when they were sort of in, in lower, lower down on the ladder and now they're, they're in senior positions. Um, there has been a lot of departures. There's yeah. been a, a lot of people moving on in some cases to PR or marketing or, or corporate work um, in some cases to other media entities but it's you know it my sense is it's just it's kind of just gotten smaller not so much that the guard has changed but, but um, that they're trying to kind of do new things with with um, some of the same old people if you know what I mean yeah yeah it becomes difficult I mean I, I mean I spent a number of well, I didn't spend 15 years, and I spent a number of months inside of Post Media in Canada trying to help them figure out their way. It's a lot of wayfinding, especially around the mobile space, and and uh, mm -hmm. and it's and it's very difficult because every time I looked back, 
I would see, you know, four, you know, 25 or $30 million printing presses that were like anchors, right? Uh, you know, of their yeah. business model. And, and uh, I always wonder out loud, is it is it possible that these these big things can change? Can these companies in the space who are who are who have been built in print for 150 years, can they move off of print? Does Matthew know the answer? Will print survive? Well, for us to survive, I need to play this ad. This episode is brought to you by Thinknear. Here's co-founder John Hennigan to remind us we what they do. We specialize in delivering advertising solutions uh, for our customers that focus on location. They also help you save money on gas, whether you know it or not. They worked with a national fueling station with locations across the country. Brett Cohen explains what Thinknear did. One of the things we wanted to do with location is pull in local data and use it as part of the ad creative. We served mobile ads and in the banner creative, we actually piped in through an API local gas price information. It's actually telling them the lowest price gas in that, in that local area. And when they click through the ad, they could get a list of all the gas stations in their local area, say in the nearest one to two miles, and get the live real-time gas prices. We're giving them information that helps them make a better decision about where to buy their gas, where to buy their fuel, and that makes for a much better brand experience and a much better performance for the campaign. Think near, saving you money at the pump. And now back to Matthew Ingram of Gigo. Can these companies in the space who are who are who have been built in print for 150 years, can they move off of print? I mean, that's, you know, that is the sort of 100 billion dollar question. I yeah. think there's it is so difficult for an organization of that size to to change even a little let alone a lot or let alone sort of in such a transformative way and it's it's very difficult even when they realize that they need to change so if you've read any of clay christensen's work about um, disruption he one of the principles is that even when the senior leaders of a company or an industry know the change is coming. They see it and they know they have to change. They still can't do it because, you know, psychologically, emotionally, structurally, you know, all of these things prevent them from making the changes that they need to make, even when intellectually they agree that they need to make those changes. And I saw this so many times in meetings at the globe where we would go and talk about what we needed to do online or what we could do online and everyone would agree that we could do these great things or we should do some of these things and then everyone would leave the meeting and do exactly the same thing that they used to do because that's that's how you got your job that's how you got promoted from your other job that's how you sort of advanced in the organization no one got promoted because they said you know we need to completely change the way we're doing things and do something completely opposite to what we've done for the last 60 years. So it just, it's, it's institutional um, and it's, it's almost impossible to get an organization like, like that to change as dramatically or as quickly as it needs to. And that's, I think, what we, what we see quite often. I mean, do you still read the newspaper? Do you pick up a good, do you pick up a local newspaper or, or is stuff that you do traditionally done through a tablet or through, uh, through online? these days it's funny I I don't read newspapers at all anymore yeah. I get the um, 
I get the globe in print because my wife likes to do the crossword. And <laughs> they love to hear that, don't they? Yeah. And I get I get the New York Times on Sunday because th that gives me access to the digital version. But for I mean for some time now, certainly since I left, um, I much prefer to read on either online or on a device mm -hmm. because there's when I read in the, in the print version, I often think you know, I'd love to know more about that or I'd love to share that piece with someone or link to it or post it somewhere. And then I have to, so then I have to go online, then I have to go to the website, try and find the story, which is like stabbing yourself in the <laughs> eye. After that. And then, and then I have to fig find the link and then share it. It's just too cumbersome. Um, and actually some stories and photos look better on a digital device than they do in paper. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And then, you know, it, it just, it's so funny because you know, the world evolved, it seems, and it kind of built around, uh, built up around the newspapers. And, and and you're a guy that has lived this example. I mean, you, you took a flyer and you jumped over to an organization like Gigom, and five years later, in retrospect, it looks great. But I wonder why these big companies look don't look for young companies at the time, even Gigom. Like, why wouldn't the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times buy Gigom five years ago and, 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 and nurture that? whether or not it was for sale five years ago or at all. But you know what I mean? Like they, they look for, uh, we just talked about in Canada, Canada's biggest uh, media company, uh, Post Media, just bought 170 more print newspapers. Um, mm -hmm. But why wouldn't they go and take that money and go and buy like a podcast network or something that is the future? Like, do you ever scratch your head and think like, why don't they, why aren't they looking at these other organizations? I think in some ways they probably are, but they just don't know sort of what, they would do with them. And in some cases, I think they're right not to buy them because they would probably just wither and die <laughs> inside so those organizations um, and fail to kind of make the change that they, that they need to make. It's, it, those types of transformative acquisitions are very, they're very rare. Most of the time, even when companies do try to do that, the thing they buy fails, Dies. not only fails to transform them, but winds up dying. Hmm. Yeah, it's so. It, I just, I, it's tough, right? Because you have these conversations, and I, I've, I've explained that I've fallen in love with media as a result of doing Untethered TV. You have been in media for your entire life now. Twenty, how many years? Twenty plus years now. Is that? Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, to watch something that you you love, kind of realize that there's there's this cliff coming, and there's nobody that can deviate. There's nothing that can deviate from that cliff. Uh, which makes it very interesting that that a lot of these companies in the mobile space that we've seen emerge have kind of taken that like you know companies like uh, like a flip a flipbook or or Zite or these companies that have tried to mm -hmm. or circa have tried to amalgamate and bring together all of these and and I, I would even I, I would think about um, you, you know big companies and small companies that have that have become a an amalgamation of all the other media out there. I mean, when you started to see these companies emerge, what are you thinking? This is good. This is bad. This is the beginning. This is the end. What's the impact of those companies? I mean, to me, it's I I sort of it's easy to get um, depressed, you know, and, and look, <laughs> when you're looking at newspapers in particular, but also magazines or TV, it's sure. easy to sort of get depressed about how dramatically things are changing and how these things are shrinking, um, and how people you know are losing their jobs, um, but if you, and I've said this many times, if you're, if what you care about is journalism and media in general and just sort of content or whatever you want to call it, if what you care about is, is the ability for creative people to do things that they want to do 
and connect with an audience who cares about that, it's it's the best time ever. It's never we have never had a better time for doing that. It's just that certain specific you know structures that were put in place to do that with an old technology are not are failing. So it's n it's a great time to be a journalist. It's a great time to be a writer or a creator. Um, it's a bad time to run a newspaper, <laughs> and it's a bad time to run you know a traditional TV network. But that's not to say that there isn't a whole lot of creativity going on. And so part of what I did, why what I do or try to do um, when we had our media conference uh, paid content in New York, I said, you know, we we spend part of our time talking about things that are dying. And, and things that are being disrupted in a negative way, but we try to spend a bunch of time talking about what are the new things that are coming, what are some of the new experiments that are working, or things that, that do seem to be um, doing something different that maybe people should look at as being important. And, you know, I looked at things like Circa, for example. Ohm is quite skeptical of Circa and whether it fulfills a need, but I think it's an interesting experiment. Um, it's a different way of thinking about how we interact with content and what and what readers really want or what they need and how we can give it to them in a different way and so I'm always interested in that I'm interested in it's it's hard to pick winners and losers it's hard to say this is going to work and this isn't but I'm always interested in someone who's doing something different is it is it really you know even the transition that I see a lot of companies going through or the companies that are emerging even on TV, it's like sponsor supported and then maybe there's some paid content maybe there's like for Gigom there's events and research like it's not it's it's not a new model uh, you know it's translated over to the internet just like you know ads translated over to the internet and are now trying to find their way in mobile um, but but there is there is this is just a transference of a business model and can 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 the web sustain what what print can't you know you know what I mean like you know it, it's very difficult to find sponsors that are willing to spend mm -hmm. money on a smaller audience than than print these days. It is very difficult, and it's and I would never you know I wouldn't even start to claim that that some of these things are easier. In many cases, they're they're much harder. Um, but I think there's never been sort of the barriers to entry and the barriers to success have never been lower. Right. So you certainly, there's certainly the option to do things in a different way, in a way that was never possible. So I just finished writing um, yesterday and today about a guy named Ben Thompson who runs a blog called Stratechery. Um, about tech strategy and he started his blog less than two years ago and about six months ago he decided to put up a, a membership uh, wall and, and ask his readers to pay um, and he's now got over a thousand paying readers um, so if that continues he will be making his living completely from readers so no advertising no sponsored content no nothing and that's a, you know, he said this would literally never have been possible. I would never have been able to do what I'm doing right now before the web. And so that's great. You know, that's wh how many Ben Thompsons could there be? How many, you know, Andrew Sullivan's with the Daily Dish could there be? How many Jesse Brown's, you know, doing uh, a Patreon crowdfunding campaign? I don't know, but at least there are a few and, and they seem to be doing pretty well. I mean, Jesse has raised almost $10,000 a month. Yeah. People are paying. That's incredible. That's effectively he's going to be running a company, a podcasting company that he created from nothing that's being funded completely by listeners. 
It's crazy. And I think of Tom Merritt as well, right? Uh, who's an ex-twit uh, mm-hmm. uh, guy who, who's doing, I think, 12,000, 4,800 Patreons on Patreon.com. Yeah. Like that's $12,000 a month. Mm-hmm. Right, that's what that's what uh, the support is, and I, and I, a huge fan of that. Um, I have a small one; it doesn't generate quite the the, the amount of people. But you, you know what I notice about what's happening is that uh, the traditional media guys um, who have a following, and I would say even podcasting is traditional media now that it's ten years old, and and guys like Leo Laporte have been able to bring. Um, have been able to bring some very good talent into his studio, mm-hmm. and then they've gone off and, and done some good things as well. I think keeping people is is always going to be a challenge but they bring an audience with them like leo started online but he had his radio show nationally syndicated 180 channels 180 stations across the united states so he brought an audience with him is that is that what you're seeing like when you came over to gigom did you bring your audience with you i definitely did i mean i had um trying to remember how many twitter followers i had but you were on twitter five years ago i had a yeah yeah Right. I had a substantial number, partly because I was at the Globe and partly because I was early and partly because, you know, people wanted to connect with someone who was in the media. But so for whatever reason, um, I built up a following and did I did take them with me. Um, I think it's it's definitely easier. I mean, Andrew Sullivan has been writing for decades for various publications and has built up a following. And so it was relatively I'm not going to say easy, but it was easier for him to sort of put up a site and say, please pay me, because he had, a, a, he had legions of fans. Right. Um, that's part of what interests me about uh, Ben Thompson. Ben Thompson was unknown. I mean, he, he was known, uh, once he started his blog, he, he gained some, you know, a, a tiny following among sort of senior executives in Silicon Valley because he was smart and the things he was writing were smart. Um, but he had no kind of national audience. He had no visibility. He was not, had never been written about. I don't think his name had ever been mentioned in, in the media. And so to, be, to, to go from nothing to basically making a living um, and, you know, a fairly good living from just writing things that you think are important and people read them and they like you and they give you money, that's, that's pretty amazing to be able to do that. God, he's my inspiration now. Forget all the other guys. <laughs> yeah, it's one one small step at a time, and I think that you're right. Can can the industry sustain this? Is this, you know, typically what you would have is, as you said, like a hairdresser, for example. I always the parallels are there. You like a hairdresser sells seats, and then you know those seats are are held to exclusive, you know, a quality of hairdresser, and then you take a portion of the cut, and and then uh, if you own the the salon, the same thing with the newspapers, right? They hire the good talent, they nurture the talent, but they bring mm-hmm. it all into one spot and they give distribution. Uh, you, you know, can the world, can media sustain a whole bunch of these guys who, like me, um, and like uh, Ohm did when he started Gig Ohm, but like Ben Thompson, who's like a thousand true fans, right? Can, can, can media sustain this? Is, who brings all that together? Well, I think we're probably going to see, um, and in fact are already seeing networks form. So when Gig Ohm first started, um, Ohm bought a bunch of, blogs, you know, mm-hmm. one-man operations. Kevin Tofel worked for, for one, um, JK on the run. Yep. And so um, he kind of aggregated some of those in order to get uh, writers who were writing about smart things and then kind of folding them all into GigaOM over time. Um, I know Jesse Brown would, would love to create a podcast network instead of just having one podcast that he does, you know, have some on different topics, and mm-hmm. um, I, I think you're 
you know, we had newspapers in a way were the aggregators of their time. Time Magazine was the aggregator of its time, um, just pulling stuff in and, and then giving people a kind of one-stop look at what was going on. Those things are being disaggregated and atomized and sort of um, unbundled. And then new bundles or new new structures will form that make more sense. You know, if you're, so Leo has effectively a podcast network. Um, those are things that are kind of driven in part by his personality and people's trust in him. And partly because those topics are sort of related, structures will form, I think, that make more sense because they'll be native to the, the kind of content platform or, or the way it's consumed instead of uh, the old structures that we used to see that were that were designed for old platforms. Yeah, and I, I love Leo's approach. He's like, yeah, if you want to, if you want a, uh, you know, a podcast on that subject, go start it, right? Don't, mm -hmm. don't rely on me. This is what I want to do. And I think he does 32 mm -hmm. or 33 shows, live shows a week, right? Which is in itself uh, a network, uh, you know, and, and I would say it's competitive to some of the bigger networks mm -hmm. that are out there. Yep. Um, so, you know, these devices, I, I want to transition a little bit into the into the into mobile because, you know, a, a lot of a lot of uh, traditional media uh, went into this world, right? It was digital first. First, it was print first, mm -hmm. then it was digital first. And now there's, you know, everybody seems to be struggling with this mobile first idea about, you know, boy, did we ever screw up in the web? We gave everything away for free. And now we've, you know, we've, we've pulled back and said, okay, we got to put up a paywall to make money off of this because why would anybody pay for this, uh, you know, a subscription if we give it away for free? But now I look at, at the things like Circa. I look at the things like Flipboard. I look at the uh, I look at the things that, like Zeit. These these companies that have emerged, uh, bought and sold, bought and sold in Zeit's case. Um, but I mean, what what do we see the impact of these going forward uh, of the devices? Not only mobile devices, but tablets, the things that we carry, the watches that are coming out, and what is this? How does this change the way that we consume media? I think it's. I mean, mobile in general. I think is just accelerating some of the changes that we already saw with digital. So um, part of what interests me about Circa is that they started thinking about um, what is the atomic unit of news? What is the sort of, if you broke down what people get when they consume news to it, the tiniest possible fragment, what would it be? Um, and they believe that it's the update. And so it's really easy to consume on a mobile. It's really easy to consume quickly. But there's also a follow model built in so you can stay in touch with that specific story, get updates when something new happens without having to read the entire story all over again. That's a very sensible approach to content consumption when you're pressed for time, when you have a small device, when you're in a hurry. Um, something that radio doesn't really... or TV and newspapers don't really um, attack. Radio does to some extent, but you've got um, the the key. I think for Circa is can they get people to adopt that follow model? Can will will enough people say I want to track this story? I want you to tell me when new stuff happens. Don't tell me about about the old stuff. Um, that's you know I'm used to stories that tell you the same thing over and over and over because they don't know they literally don't know what you know and what you don't know. The interesting thing for me about Circa is they know what I've read and what I haven't read. They know exactly which paragraphs I've read and haven't read. So that's interesting information and it, and it sort of changes the way you think about how you deliver that content to just 
My problem with a lot of mobile strategies that media companies have, and I don't know if you found the same thing, they, other than maybe a few tweaks here or there, they're just taking similar types of content and just putting it on a tablet instead of on a website. That is not a fundamentally different way of doing things. But I think once we you know, are using a different device in different ways for different things, you have to change the way you think about the content that you're providing. It's not just, and that doesn't mean everything has to be super short. I read long things on my phone all the time, but if there, if I have to go and download a specific app, and then I have to sign into the app, and then I have to download a thing, and it's, you know, it's got ads that were designed for the web that are crunched into the space of my mobile, I'm eventually just going to give up. And so I think you, I was I was intrigued that the post was uh, post media was actually thinking about they adopted the circa follow model for example um, so that people could track stories they they were trying to think about when do you use your tablet is it more of an evening thing so maybe we'll give you something more like a magazine that at least is it's a tiny tiny step but it's at least trying to think about the content in a different way instead of just well, we'll do pretty much the same thing, but we'll just put it on a tablet instead of on a website. And wash your hands of it. Done. Uh, that's mm -hmm. our mobile strategy. Right. I, 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 Circa's a very interesting interesting piece. Um, you, you know, I always I question it. I mean, maybe I'm on home side with this. I wonder, like, you know, are they going to run into that same issue? Is that, uh, you know, the content has to come from somewhere. They're putting, mm -hmm. a, a, you know, a software layer on top of that. And I know that they were acquired, so it, it, it makes it a little bit easier. But, you know, how do... Can, can these companies, are they going to just run into the same challenge that traditional media has? Like, you know, when it comes to revenue generation, you know, mm -hmm. those are always, and I know that, you know, now more than ever, you know, sales and advertising and editorial are, are coming together almost. They have to in order to be able to survive. But, but uh, and I, I don't want to bring it in here as a focus, but there's got to be a point where some of these companies fly um, mm -hmm. or, or they're going to end up in the same, you know, dustbin as some of the, the media companies, aren't they? I think Circa is hoping um, that they'll be able to sort of white label their their software and the algorithms and the and the sort of tools that right. help them do what they do, and so anyone will be able to kind of circify their own content. That's one model. Yep. Obviously, you become a sort of service provider, or you have proprietary software or or algorithms that you can then license. Um, I think the, you know, obviously the, the, the major area everyone is going after is native advertising or sponsored content. And I think the, there again, the ones who are doing it well are thinking about it differently. They're not, um, I mean, part of what the, the, the challenge for media in, in, in general is, is that the fundamental um, revenue model for that business is also being disrupted. So at the same time that your media business and the way readers consume it and what they expect from it is being disrupted, the thing that you use to pay for it is also going through the same disruption. So ad agencies and the ad business are being disrupted in exactly the same ways. They're, they're in some ways even further behind than the media industry in terms of understanding the, the transformation of their business. And so you've got those two pieces kind of being transformed at the same time, except not at the same speed. And so you've got to think about um, how do you 
bring both of those parts along. And the ones who are doing the best, I think BuzzFeed or Vice, um, are thinking about advertising, sponsored content, native advertising, as just content. It, so forget about the fact that it's advertising. Forget about the fact that, you know, and maybe you have a separate editorial arm and you have a separate advertising arm like BuzzFeed does. You, you treat them, the, the way you're thinking about that content is the same. The, the things that it has to achieve are the same. So BuzzFeed thinks about how to get people to read and share their content regardless of whether it's advertising or editorial. The same, not that the same people create it, but the same sort of thinking goes into it. How does it work? What are the sort of levers that we're trying to pull when it comes to getting people to click and share our content? That's smart. I mean, that's, those two things should be very similar. Advertising, when it works, is just useful content. Um, so that's the kind of holy grail, I think, that most media companies are going after. So how do they do that? Like, it just seems, you know, I, I see it. I mean, I have a small audience, but it's an engaged audience, and I and I and I love it. And it was it's a bigger audience than I ever had anticipated that I would ever get. Uh, you know, beyond my family, I never thought. And in fact, they don't even watch these things. Uh, I never thought that that people would would come to this content regularly, and they do. And it and it's 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 humbling and it's enlightening and it's great. Um, but it's a small audience, so so. You know, mm -hmm. does does that does audience size matter anymore, or is it is it are, are we in this world as a result of these devices that this is just this is niche? And when I'm standing at a at a bus stop, I should be able to get some content from somebody, and and whether I I download a podcast, that's a mobile interaction that I look at as well, or or when I'm uh, looking at a um, I don't know a book or a magazine, I should be able to grab some content from that uh, from my device. Is is that what we're doing? We're just kind of consuming micro bits of content uh, across all these different platforms, and is there any allegiance? to a single brand anymore of content? I don't believe that there is, no. I don't, to answer your last question first, I don't believe, I think allegiances are being formed based around people. Personalities, that's my fundamental, yeah. Yeah, that's my sort of fundamental um, belief about what social, broadly speaking, has done to media. Um, and social media is is a misnomer. I mean, everything, every form of media is social now, whether it wants to be or not. Right. And and all that's all that changes is is whether is how much you admit that or or kind of adapt to it. But I think what that's done is more and more consumers of all kinds of content are are sort of attaching themselves to individuals and to personal brands and to sort of relationships of some form or other with individuals. And so some, I mean, your question about whether the size matter, um, of course it matters in some ways. I mean, Coke is always going to want huge audiences, right? Or Sony is going to want huge audiences for, for whatever movie they're pushing. That is not going to stop. But they are also having to think about smaller audiences and more niche and targeted audiences and audiences that revolve much more around the individual relationship between a sort of content creator and their audience and their community because that can be hugely powerful and that's why people pay Leo Laporte or Jesse Brown to to talk about their software or their service on their podcast because it's a it's a very personal thing when Leo says you know I use MailChimp for all my my mailing services needs and I love it and those guys are great and that's that's worth so much more than 
than a million banner ads or, or sort of automated click-through ads because it's a personal thing and people trust Leo and that trust rubs off on that brand and we know that Leo tries all those things and uses all those things and so that effectively you know colors our relationship with that brand. It's a great point, and and you're right. There is that inherent trust that has emerged over the years for, for for a guy like you as well, who's been in this business for so long, and Leo has been doing it for so long, and then it translates well, uh, and and you see those reactions, uh, you know, because they keep coming back. I mean, Leo had Ford, right? There's a big company advertising on a small network that, uh, <laughs> I mean, he get his 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 podcast has has great reach, and it's a very targeted audience, so he knows exactly who he's who he's speaking to, and then you got a guy like Ben Thompson, right? Who who a shoes a shoes uh, sponsorship in in lieu of uh, you know um, you know his his subscribers paying for his mm -hmm. content um, and it's worth, it's worth pointing out that Ben um, said that he he is not opposed to sponsored content and in fact he thinks there is a place for it he didn't have the time to do it well and so he didn't want to do a kind of half-assed job because that would be a disservice to his readers sure. he wanted to you know if he was going to do it. He wanted it to be good, and he wanted it to be, you know, something that he wrote instead of just receiving marketing copy from someone. And he just didn't have the time to to devote to sort of make it that good. So he decided not to. I think it's 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 good. That's a very that's a very smart way to do it. You'd rather do something very good right. or not at all, right? Um, what about when when you when you kind of look around? It's I mean it's an interesting landscape that we're we're living in here. As you said, there's opportunities. A guy, guy like me who is an ex CEO entrepreneur to be able to do something like this uh, for me is is very interesting. It scares the crap out of me as it should, right? Uh, because I'm I'm entering this industry at a at a very interesting time. Um, and a transformative time, but also not the greatest, not the greatest, um, you know, as, as big media is imploding or whatever, however you want to describe it. I, I, what, what are we getting, are we getting dumber as a society as a result of these, you know, our desire to, to uh, learn by 140 characters or to just give me the updates. Uh, you know, the news on the radio is very short. Uh, you know, people told me that, you know, long form episodes, nobody has the attention span to listen to 30 or 35 minutes in a podcast on a commute. Um, but we still listen to, you know, TSN 990, and we listen to that for three and a half hours. And here in Ottawa, the senator's pregame and postgame is eight hours in, com in total. And we listen to that stuff. But, you know, these snippets of, of content, we always talk about short content. Are we, are we getting dumber? Do we know how to consume this properly? You know, I don't know the answer to that. I, I mean, I've, I've, I've certainly heard those arguments. Um, I don't. I don't believe fundamentally that we have changed that much. I think people have always consumed content um, in bits and pieces, and they've always sort of had fragmented attention spans. You know, there's this there's this tendency to paint this kind of rosy picture of the past when everybody had time to sit with a newspaper and read the whole thing. No one ever did that. Mm -hmm. I mean, let's admit it. Um, <laughs> most people just, you know, they'd pull out a section or two, throw the rest in the garbage, look at a headline, misunderstand the headline, you know, um, not read the whole story through to the end, um, talk to somebody about it on the train um, or at the office, you know, catch a bit of a headline on a radio broadcast, misunderstand that. You know, that, that stuff always happened. I think there's, there's just more of it now, and it's much more obvious. And it's sort of the, the information overload has become much more of a problem than it used to be. But if you are, so this is my 
theory about what's called the filter bubble, um, which is a related problem where you just consume content that you already agree with um, and you search out people who sort of agree with you. Um, you know, people have always done that. People yes. always read the one columnist that they agreed with and they listened to the one TV anchor that they agreed with and they never watched any other TV episodes or, or channels. They never read other newspapers. Um, some people didn't read newspapers at all. So, you know, it was always possible to live in a filter bubble. It is, it's more possible now, but the, the flip side, if you do want to be exposed to alternative points of view and if you do want to consume different types of content, whether it's long form or podcasts or kind of things that you would never have been exposed to before, that ability is, is orders of magnitude larger, like the, the potential for that is orders of magnitude larger than it has ever been. So you have much more ability to do that than you ever would have um, if you want to. Mm -hmm. If you don't want to, then sure, you can live in a filter bubble and, and that's, it's pretty easy to do. But if you, want to, if you don't want to do that, then you have much more sort of freedom and, and opportunity than ever before, I think. Uh, and uh, I mean, uh, a guy uh, in your role, uh, you must consume an insane amount of content. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, you know, because I, I do and, and I, I, I don't report on it. It's just, uh, it's basically, it's, it's, it's porn, right? It's just like, I, I, I need more, and not, not that I need more porn, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it, 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 mm -hmm. it becomes that way where it's an obsession. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that I'm obsessed with porn. I just want to make that very clear. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is a bad conversation to have. Right? Uh, you're getting a picture of me, aren't you? Um, but uh, so when you when you go through this, like, are you looking for are you, you know in this world that we live in right now? Is it about the breaking story, or or is it about the story in depth that is of interest uh, that should be of interest to us uh, right now? I think it's about both, to be honest. I'm I mean, breaking news of any kind, you know, new news. I mean, the, it's the word news is is called that for a reason. It's new, and so uh, that's what people are interested in usually. Um, I think you're, there's, a, there's a phrase that I think comes from economics that the writer Robin Sloan wrote about a while back, a few years ago, uh, called stock and flow. And stock and flow are, are opposites. So stock refers to things that are um, stable, um, you know, like the stock in a warehouse, for example, things that sit there on the shelf, they're unchanging to some extent. Um, they're dependable, they'll be there for a long time. Flow is the exact opposite. Flow is Twitter, it's the stream, it's the sort of real-time, never-ending, never-changing, or always-changing kind of flow. And, in, and he was saying, and, and sort of media theorists have talked about how we're constantly flipping back and forth between those things, or doing both at the same time. So one is just consuming, you know, the the crawl on CNN and the headlines that flow by and the and the radio you know updates or Twitter or, and it's just constant bombarding of tiny little pieces of information and then the other thing we do is we want context and we want a longer form piece that will explain things to us or we want a podcast that will go into those issues in more depth we want both of those things most people do um, we just want them at different times and so you know I try to to do what I can to do both, and I certainly seek seek out both. Sometimes I'm 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 basically glued to Twitter because something is breaking, something is happening. 
and you want to find out as much about it as you can. And I was describing to someone the other day how I think most people in those moments, they're willing to trade immediacy for, for um, veracity, if you will. Or, so they're willing to, to kind of suspend disbelief and get as much information as they can as quickly as possible. And then later, over time, figure out what it means or whether it's true or whether that's actually happening or not. And, and so media companies or just journalists in general, I think, kind of have to live in both those environments or be able to live in both those environments. So accumulating information very quickly, trying to fact check it as quickly as possible and give it to people as quickly as possible while also kind of pulling it together over time and making sense of it and filtering out things and putting in other things and then wrapping it all up in a way that makes sense to people and giving them some kind of context and awareness of that issue. Because I think people want both of those things at different times. They do. You know, it's funny. Like As you're describing this, I think of obviously the events that happened here in Ottawa um, mm-hmm. uh, about a month ago and, uh, and, and the kind of the immediate, uh, you know, firestorm that happened as a result, you know, multiple shooters, all these different things that right. were coming out. And then it kind of solidified by the, the next day what, it exact, what exactly had happened. Um, and that, that was like an over an, uh, an abundance. I was in Chicago and we were tracking it and it was an abundance of information that was coming through and it's a perfect example. And then I think about way back in 1987, I was a 17-year-old kid, home sick as I watched the Challenger take off uh, because mm-hmm. I did that every single time a space shuttle t- took off. And I was watching this thing as it exploded. Uh, you know, Me too. Yeah, and I, I, it was tra- I stood there at the screen like, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. And I look around and there's absolutely, imagine this, folks who are, who weren't maybe born in 1987, that there was nobody to tell. And there was mm-hmm. no way to tell anybody, right? Yeah. I got dressed. I raced to my school, my high school, which was around the corner, just to go and tell people, right? Mm-hmm. It took a lot to get me into the school to begin with, uh, any day. But I raced to the school because that was my social network. And I think about how this has transformed today, right? There was no information that filtered through that. Now there's an overabundance of information that mm-hmm. at the end of the day hits a funnel and you get the, the truth. And I, those are the two examples that, that, that I thought about as you, were, as you were saying that. But I mean, that, uh, you know, you would never have that. You know, a moment would not go by between something happening with a spacecraft, as we've seen with Richard Branson, uh, and, mm-hmm. and the truth and something coming out. And I, that's what's so fascinating. I think one of the sort of fundamental shifts in in media or news or information is all of the stuff that, I mean, I think about 9-11, I was at the Globe, and we had just started uh, Globemail.com, the real-time newsroom, and we had a small newsroom of largely young people um, and a bank of TVs, and we, and we were running this website, and uh, I mean, there maybe was six or seven of us, um, but when when the sort of chaos started and and the the blizzard of kind of information and misinformation and disinformation started happening um and that was before twitter but there were lots of websites and lots of blogs and and there was tv that was getting things wrong all of that stuff used used to only be available to newsrooms so newsrooms would see 
wire services get things wrong or push things out that you know that they hadn't verified and they would say we're checking this or you know things would come in from like people would call or you would call people and it was just this chaos of information and your job as a newsroom was to sort of make sense of it and filter it and package it and then give it to people but now all of that what used to happen only in newsrooms is everywhere so all of the kind of misinformation and lack of context and just you know fear-mongering and and people who hear things wrong and all of those things that used to just be on the newswire and the emergency band you know radio are now everywhere and so everyone is exposed to the kind of sausage making process that only used to occur in newsrooms and that's you know it's a very very disruptive thing for both for journalists who were used to controlling that process and for people trying to make sense of that information because it's just a kind of confusing mess um, and it's hard to get used to the idea that that's what information has always been like it was only you know certain people saw it and then tried to protect you from it but now it's <laughs> but now it's everywhere there, nobody's been trained like that's the problem is that everybody's right. given this this massive fire hose and nobody is trained to understand and, and to root out the, the real the, the real story and all of that uh, and, and I, that's actually why companies like Storyful which got acquired by News Corp uh, Mark Little who started that was a foreign correspondent for Irish TV um, and they're one of the companies that I was very uh, interested in when they first started and even more interested in now and their whole business model is we track all that stuff and figure it out and make sense of it and tell you what's right and what's wrong so that you can then, you know, package the right stuff and show it to your audience. I mean, that's a fundamental um, function, journalistic function, that, that we need more than ever now. And so we need not just Storyful, but we need, you know, everybody doing that. And in fact... Brown Moses, the British um, investigative blogger, that's effectively his his approach as well. Andy Carvin, when he was tweeting from Egypt um, or about Egypt, same approach. Take all that chaos and kind of make sense of it and, and tell people what's right and what isn't. Was all this chaos created because of the devices that we carry with us, the pervasive nature of, of a connected device, always on, always taking photos, always being able to document and archive and tweet and Facebook post and instant message. Is that really, like, that must have just changed the world for reporters and for, uh, for pretty much all media. Definitely. Yeah. In fact, I remember reading um, one of the early, early bloggers, um, Justin Hall, I think his name was, from... I think it was in 1995 when most <laughs> people were still even just getting used to the idea that there was an internet. Yep. Um, he was saying, imagine what would be possible or what will be possible when um, journalists have a mobile phone and maybe a mobile camera and they can go anywhere and report from anywhere. And, you know, we now have that not just for journalists, but for anyone. That anyone who's anywhere where anything interesting is happening effectively has all the same tools as a as a team of broadcast journalists you know from CNN did 10 years ago so and the same access to a potentially huge audience that's that's the most transformative event that you could think of it's far more transformative than just oh now newspapers have websites or <laughs> you know now people can blog i mean it's it's a fundamental sort of 
reorienting of the landscape of, of what we call journalism. Do you think, uh, you know, I keep asking you, Matthew, I asked for 30 minutes. I, now, I'm, now I feel like I'm stealing your time. But I, I got to ask, do you, do you think that, that because of that ability, um, the, the, the minimum bar for news has has been raised you know what i mean like like we're no longer interested in in the murder around the corner because there's four like a you know a you know a a murder suicide over here or there's you know you know four people have been killed over here do you think like have have we have we raised that gore level or the level of news because everybody can report so now a fender bender doesn't matter but this does i don't know if i'm asking that right I don't know, actually. I still think people are interested in um, the things that happen around them, mm -hmm. the things that are that are in your local area or in your city or that you might know someone who is involved with are always going to be more interesting yeah. than things that happen elsewhere. It's just that there's more competition, if you will, for your attention. And so, you know, maybe you are more interested in a landslide in Tibet than you are in a shooting around the corner um, and you can get as much information as you want about both of those things so you, maybe you gravitate towards one rather than the other but I don't I think in a way there's there's more competition I sort of took your question a different way that there's more competition for the attention of your readers of your potential audience if you're a journalist or a media entity so you have to effectively work harder in order to to kind of gain their attention or buy their attention or win their attention so it's no longer enough to say this just happened because they will instantly know that from about fifteen different other sources so that aspect of news has been commoditized i mean it it was effectively already by cnn but it's even worse now so the simple act of telling somebody that something just happened is 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 worth nothing effectively yeah. and the value of that to, to the extent there is value decreases so rapidly like half-life of that event is is measured in seconds maybe minutes whereas it used to be measured in hours or days and so now you just have to try harder as a media entity or a journalist to give people something more either more depth or more insight or something extra that they didn't expect and so that's why you see, I think, a lot of the frenzied behavior on the part of particularly TV, but media companies of all kinds, to find something new or to pump something up that maybe isn't that new because you're trying to effectively drown out all that other competition for those the attention of those readers. Yeah, hence the, uh, the uh, top story uh, yesterday. You'll, it will date right. this episode, which was, you know, uh, crisis at Freedom Tower and two guys stuck up in their, in their mm -hmm. window washing unit, right? That was on every news channel. And, and, uh, and I yeah. saw it on CNN. It was a crisis at Freedom Tower. And, uh, you know, it just, um, you know, those are the stories that, that I, I sit back and I chuckle at. That's not, that's not real news. Uh, but it's a diversion. At least the Canadian guys buried it, you know, third or fourth lead uh, in the news. Stations. I thought you were going to mention Kim Kardashian. Well, I, you know, she's too much of an easy target, right? <laughs> yeah. Literally. Uh, but, but it was interesting how, you know, my stream was half uh, amazement at us landing a robot probe on a comet yep. and half making fun of Kim, Kim Kardashian's. <laughs> Uh, derriere so it was you know I joked about how that was the kind of all the rest of human activity occurs between the those two poles those two <laughs> extremes. Um, 
you know, on the one hand, you've got this kind of galactic kind Ten of mission. amazing yes. scientific achievement that makes humanity feel good about itself. And, and on the other side, it's people gaping at some woman's bum. So. Yeah. Well, finally, it was exposed. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, 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 that's where I feel it's kind of sad, right? Uh, as a guy, and, and I tend to stray away from it. But, I mean, Kim Kardashian has leveraged a mobile and her name yeah, into... Yeah, a huge, successful app. Yeah. She, she, Unboggling. She, they're talking about 100 to $120 million. million but up to $120 million to all told at the end of all of this that she will have taken home. So who's the idiot, right? Uh, yeah. What? Not us. I mean, not her. <laughs> um. I got one last question. Is there sure. a company that you guys are looking at that you you are looking at that you think, aside from GigaOM, that, that you're looking? At? We talked about Circa. Uh, you know, BuzzFeed is certainly uh, you know came shot out of out of uh, a cannon. Um, we talked about Ben Thompson, what he's doing. Is there anything else that you're looking at that you're thinking, man, this is this is something. This this could be transformative. This is something that people should be watching. Um, I guess I mean there's a there's a bunch of them, but for me, one of the ones that I sort of keep an eye on because I, to be honest, can't figure out exactly what it's doing or, or what it is, which always, which I always find interesting, um, is Medium. So right. the company that Evan Williams, former CEO of Twitter and, and founder of Blogger created, a, a guy who's involved with two of probably the most, you know, fundamentally transformative companies of the last 20 years. I mean, he could be running a shoe company, and I would be interested. Um, he certainly, the way he thinks about kind of content and the way he thinks about media and the way he thinks about r relationships around that is always going to be interesting. And Medium is, it's confusing, and yet, so it's an open platform, and anybody can go there and write, but they're also creating something like a kind of uh, Condé Nast magazine sort of strategy where they've got you know, curated collections with editors and so on. That's, I just find it kind of fascinating, those two things uh, put together. And it's a very well-designed site. It's, it's, it's beautiful to look at. It's easy to use. Um, I just, I don't know quite what is going to happen to it or what it's doing, but it's fascinating. Yeah, medium. Well, I wonder as well. Is this the future of pub of, uh, of of this publication industry? Is it is it a magazine? I don't know. But because of his celebrity, he can bring on the great celebrities, like you yeah. know, that that will drive activity. So again, it's audience uh, that that he he's can. He's also a billionaire. So yeah, it has. A, <laughs> so he can spend some money. And we didn't even mm -hmm. talk about the other billionaire that that uh, buys newspapers. And I'll have to. I'll get your opinion on about that later. I, I've now taken up twice sure. the amount of time that that I have. I'd love to have you back on, Matthew, and we can have a deeper yeah, conversation sure. about this kind of stuff. But uh, where should we send Anytime. people now to find more information about you? Uh, well, you can send them to Twitter at Matthew I with one T, or you can send them. To Gigaom, yep. And uh, that's it. So Gigaom.com or uh, Matthew I, that's with one T, M-A-T-H-E-W-I, yep. at Matthew mm -hmm. I. Um, Matthew, thank you for doing this. I really appreciate your time. This has been great. I could, we, you know what? I could probably speak all afternoon with you about this kind of stuff. It's so fascinating. And I, I learn a ton because, look, I, I'm in the middle of doing something that I think is ridiculous, uh, which is in the media space. And you've been doing this for so long and you've emerged uh, through GigaOM during that time where it's been massive growth and investment and growth. And, and uh, so I can learn a lot from what you guys have been doing. So I'd love to uh, have that conversation. We'll save it for a later date, though. 
Sure. Well, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to talk about it, too. I could talk about it all day. That's great. We've been speaking with uh, Matthew Ingram. Uh, he is a senior writer at GigaOM. You can follow him on Twitter at Matthew I with one T, or just go to GigaOM.com if you haven't been there, which I would find shocking. Uh, it's time to revisit GigaOM and to see what those guys have been doing. Certainly hit up some of the events as well. Matthew, thank you for your time, man. Thanks. Folks out there watching, listening, wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thank you for bringing this into your day. Thank you for making it this far in the episode. And thank you for supporting on Tether.tv. We'll see you next time.